All right, so we're in the middle of this series that we've been calling, So What? Because the attitude, whether intentionally or not, of, of many Christians in the world towards the mission of Christ is, so what? I, I don't really care. And, and people don't intentionally have that attitude, but their actions say, so what? I don't really care. And what we're talking about uh, together for the next few weeks through the summer is this concept of, of so what? What are we sowing? What is the gospel? And what are the methods that Jesus used to, to sow the seeds of the gospel? And so we're talking about how Jesus would go out and he would employ these methods in, in his culture, in his time, the, to, to sow the life-giving, powerful message seed of the gospel. And as we look at these methods, I believe that the, the message is going to be made more clear. And I, I do want to recap the message for us as we, as we get into to this. So let's, let's just think for a second, if we can, on, on the message, on the gospel and, and, and the seed. Let's think about it. Here it is. God saw man that he created, that he loved, and saw us in our dying state because of our sin, our separation from him. And his compassion, he looks down, he says there's something that has to, has to be done about this. He sends his son, Jesus, into history to live the life that we couldn't live, to die the death that, that we deserve, not him, and to establish his kingdom and, and to restore us and to renew us back to life as he serves as our, our substitution by dying on the cross. And through our faith in that payment for us, we then can receive life, not by our work, but by his work and by his grace. And so that truth is the seed that we're talking about Jesus has sowed. He has sowed it in our hearts, and now we have the privilege to, to be used of him, to be an instrument of him, to then sow it in the lives of other people. A few weeks ago, we compared it to the seed of a, of a redwood tree that is just so small and, and seems insignificant, but the potential of the seed to have this great life-giving power is, is phenomenal, and the, the gospel message has massive potential to transform your life, to change you forever, and to grow into something big and strong in your life, and it has the potential to transform the lives of the people around you, and so that's some exciting stuff that we have in our hands, and so this summer we're focusing on how do we sow it? How do we sow? How do we plant the seeds of, of the gospel? We're looking at the methods of Christ. Last week we saw this, this method that Jesus was incarnational, that he became a man, carn, uh, meaning, meaning fleshly. He, God became a man, and his example to us was humility. It was being relational. It was being incarnational and, and being willing as the seed sower to get down close to the soil and to work the soil to get his hands dirty so that he could show love and humility and relational connectedness to the people that he created. And so that was the example for us is for him to, to be incarnational is for us to be relational. And we get that from Luke chapter 8 as we talked about the different types of soil which represents the hearts of, of, of man that we have. Some of us have hard hearts and it's like the seed hits the soil and it just doesn't penetrate. And so Jesus gets dirty. For some of us, we're like the soil with ledge or rock underneath where the seed may take root a little bit, but it doesn't go very deep. And so we get blown away, washed away, and Jesus works and takes out the rock. And for some of us, thorny soil where we have all these other cares in our lives that then kind of kill the, the, the plant, the seed, the gospel that is in our lives. And so Jesus works that. So to be incarnational is to be relational. Now this week what we're talking about is missional. Jesus was 
missional. And the root word of, of missional, obviously, being mission. Jesus came with a mission. And he didn't say, okay, I'm looking down and I want to just kind of go and, and check things out, see how they're doing down there. I'll go and, and spend some time with them, rub shoulders with them a little bit. That's not what he was thinking. He was thinking, I'm going down there with a mission. I'm going down there to accomplish something. He's here to get something done. Let me just tell you, the, the Wyatt household in, in the morning is, is kind, of a, kind of a funny household, by the way, in the morning. We, um, here's how it looks. I'll just kind of give you my routine. I get up early and I, I pray, and I read the Bible, and I study a little bit, and uh, eventually my boys will get up around 6.30, so yeah, you sleep lovers, be very strategic in who you marry, like Becky did, she's smart, and marry a morning person so they can get up with the kids, I mean, it's a very, very smart move on her part, and so they get up at 6.30 after I've been up for a while, and then the boys and I will kind of read the Bible, read a Bible story, and we'll just pray, and then we just spend a, a long time the rest of the morning till I get going for work around 8 o'clock, 8.30, just, just kind of playing. And uh, morning playtime usually kind of looks like this. I, I get down on the ground with the boys, and I just start being goofy and just kind of become one of them. And so it's a good excuse for me just to be stupid, right? And so morning playtime, what happens is it seems like most of the time my, my youngest son, two-year-old, Luca, puts a helmet on his head. For some reason, he's just running around in his diaper and his helmet, and, and that means he's ready to go. My other son, Isaiah, takes underwear and puts it on his head, and, and like he'll put his Spider-Man underwear on his head because it's got Spider-Man across the bum, you know, and he'll put it on his head, and for some reason, he thinks that like transforms him into Spider-Man, and so he's a full-on superhero with his, his underwear on his, on his head, and uh, it, it, it's, it's hysterical. It's a ton of fun, and what usually happens, we end up getting in, into some kind of, you know, like epic battle, or I end up sending the boys on some kind of, kind of secret mission, like, like just the other day. I, I was playing with the boys. Becky's still sleeping. And uh, I, I grab the boy's face. And I get right in their face. I say, guys, your mission, should you choose to accept it? Now, I'm down, down here. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to go into the mommy cave and wake up the fire-breathing mommy dragon and capture her before she awakens from her slumber. And they're like, yeah! And they're all excited and they're fired up to do this. And, and so I'm kind of getting them in on helping me wake up mom because it's quite a process because I'm kind of like, like, like a TV, you know? You hit on, it's like on, and I'm up, and zoom, I'm on, right? But she's more like a computer where, you know, you slowly got to boot up, you know? And so my boys help me boot mommy up, right? And so, so they come in, and we're like, mommy cave, and we're creeping all in around the ground, and then they get, and she's like, oh, my gosh, she's starting to wake up. She's like, oh, no. And, ah! and here comes Isaiah with underwear on his head, like pouncing on her. It's, it's incredible. And so they, they love the, the mission. They love it. And Isaiah is constantly saying in the morning, daddy. Give me a secret mission. So I have to come up with some kind of secret mission for him. And so what we're talking about this morning is, is a mission, a mission. And it's not so secret of a mission. It's laid out for us here in the scripture that Jesus was a, a man on a mission, that he had a mission. And the mission is stated for us in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. You don't have to flip there, but let me just give it to you quickly. He says, I came to seek and to save the lost. And so Jesus was on this recovery mission to rescue his people, to restore, to, to renew, to redeem his people, people who have been captured in sin and, and, and they're trapped. Galatians chapter 6 says that we get caught in sin, not caught as in busted red-handed, but caught as in you're, you're trapped in, in the sin. And Jesus comes on this recovery 
uh, mission to, to save us. And he comes as a man and he lives a life we couldn't live. He perfectly relates with us. He dies the death that we deserve, not him. And he resurrects, defeating Satan's sin and, and death. And then he offers us his righteousness, righteousness if we would just trust in his work on the cross. And so that was his mission, to execute justice and to provide salvation for the glory of God and for the good of man. And so Jesus was this man on a mission. He was God-man on a mission. Let's get that. He's man on a mission. So as we jump into the text this morning, I want us just to be in awe of Jesus and how focused he was and be in awe of Jesus and the mission that he is on. And so if you would, just take the, take the scriptures, John chapter 18, verse 1, if you would. Flip to John chapter 18, verse 1. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, we'll, we'll send a couple guys down, some ushers down, and they'll just have Bibles. If you just want to kind of raise up your hand, you can, you can grab one of those Bibles. If you don't have a Bible of your very own, uh, I would be really pleased, really happy if you would take this home and just keep it as your own and uh, break that bad boy in well. That would be uh, really exciting for us to know that you get that. So John chapter 18, verse 1. And uh, I just want to give you a little bit of context here as we're looking at John 18, verse 1. First of all, the, the story that we're looking at today, I want you to know that nothing catches God by surprise. Did you hear that? Nothing catches God by surprise. He's, he's never going, oh, Oh, wow. Okay, okay. Let's change the plans here. Not at all. He knows what's happening. He knows where he's going. He knows what he's getting into. And he is completely in control. So with that said, let me give you just a bit of a chronological timeline. So we'll start with, with, with John 18.1 here being where we're at today. Now let's go back in history chronologically and, and work our way towards John 18.1. First of all, um, you, you need to see this as we unveil this timeline that God is completely in control. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, at the very beginning of, of time, Adam and Eve turn from God, they fall in, in sin, and, and after they do that, God says that Jesus shall bruise Satan's head, which is, which is a, 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 a killing kind of wound, and that uh, Satan will then only bruise Jesus' head which is more of an annoyance, which is a, a prophetic speaking towards the, the cross. So that's at the beginning, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now 700 years prior to John chapter 18, 1, Isaiah the prophet says that God will send the Messiah. He will come to Israel. He will be rejected by Israel, and he will be killed by Israel. Then 400 years from John chapter 18, 1, God stops sending prophets. And so there's silence, and that silence Builds the anticipation. Now, 33 years from John chapter 18, verse 1, God's silence is broken. You know the story, Christmas, where there's, there's a multitude of angels in the sky and they're singing of the Savior of the world and announcing his birth 33 years before where we're looking at today. Three and a half years before John 18, 1. John the baptizer, who has never seen Jesus face to face, sees Jesus come up and he immediately says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what does Jesus do? He certainly doesn't object. Three years from this date, John chapter 18, 1, Jesus in this, this kind of secret meeting tells Nicodemus that he has descended from heaven and that he will then ascend back into heaven. Now one year before this date, Jesus tells his followers that he will be killed by Jewish leaders and he will then rise again after three days. Then four days, four days before this date, Jesus marches into Jerusalem and people are singing his praises. 
They're singing his praises. Some men in the corner, though, are off on the side plotting his death. And Jesus weeps over the city because he knows that they're going to reject him just four four days prior. And on this date, where we're looking today, Jesus is betrayed. He's arrested. He's denied. He's mocked. He's put on trial for his death that will happen the next day. And so let's read it. John chapter 18, verses 1, 2, and 3. When Jesus had spoken these words... He went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now let's let's stop there if we can. For some time now, for some time now, the ministry of Jesus has been marching and working towards Jerusalem where he would get his work done on the cross, where he would accomplish his mission. And his life on earth, his incarnation, was not only to be a good teacher. It was not only to be a good example. It was not only to teach us to, to do the fluffy things, love, right? But it was to end up in Jerusalem as foretold and to die a brutal death on, on the cross. And, and here, Jesus is, is in a place where he has been praying, and he's been encouraging his disciples to pray for him, but they kept falling asleep. You know the story. And, and he's at this place where he's, he's uh, in history, he's taken time with his disciples in this garden. And this time he's there, and he's praying, encouraging his disciples to pray, and a crowd comes up. Now, usually when there's a crowd around Jesus, it's a positive thing. There's crowds around Jesus to hear him teaching because they've never heard anybody teach like Jesus. There's crowds around Jesus often to to see him perform miracles and ask him to do miracles on on their behalf. But this crowd was, was different. This crowd included soldiers, it included officers of the, of the chief priest and of the Pharisees, and in this crowd was Jesus' friend, close guy named Judas, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, and Judas brought this crowd to Jesus because he knew where Jesus and his boys typically hung out in this garden of Gethsemane. Now, the other synoptic gospels, which we talked about last week, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other synoptic gospels talk about Judas giving Jesus a kiss. And what he's doing when he's, he's giving Jesus a kiss is he's identifying to the crowd, this is the guy you want because it's dark outside. And so he gives his teacher a kiss, which was a common practice between a disciple and his teacher. And when he goes to give Jesus a kiss, Jesus says, whoa, Judas, is it really going to go down like this? Are you, are you really going to do this classless? You're really going to betray me with a kiss? And so he questions Judas. And, and here's the deal. He knew, in his, he's all-knowing, and he knew that this money-hungry Judas had already sold him out and was going to kiss him to identify the one that was to be arrested and then killed. And we really hear in John 18, which doesn't include the story of, of Judas giving a kiss, we, we really start to get some context painted for us here. You really start to get this, this story, this image in your mind, and it is a very intimidating situation. It says that there's a crowd, the angry mob, we, we see that it's dark outside, and so they have lanterns, they have torches, and it says that they have weapons, so just put yourself in this scenario. I mean, this is, this is frightening. And, and Jesus doesn't do the one thing that I would do when I see torches coming up over the hill, and that is take off, right? I would be out of there. I'd be like, see, I don't, I don't know if they're friends or not, but I'm, I'm out of there. Jesus doesn't 
do that. And maybe you're thinking, well, of course, he's Jesus. Jesus doesn't run. Yes, he does. Jesus has, has, has run. Back in, in Luke chapter 4, the first time we see a, a, a crowd coming after Jesus, this is the last time. It's like a bookend here of Jesus having a crowd coming after him. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is, is beginning his ministry, and he's, he's beginning it in his hometown of, of Nazareth. And, and he reads the, the, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he reads it, and he, he says, I fulfilled this prophecy. And people get angry. They get furious. And it says that they're full of wrath. And so they start to go after him. And this angry mob chases Jesus all the way to a cliff. And then what does he do? He takes off. He takes off. It's miraculous. He kind of goes through the crowd. But Jesus has fleed historically. But this time, he does not flee because he has some things that, that he needs to do. And, and, and their arresting him is, is a big part of that. So check this out. Here in John chapter 18, doesn't flee this time because he knows it's time. He knows what he co- has come to do. He doesn't flinch. He's clearly in control. He's poised. He's focused. Now watch this. Look at verses 4 through 9. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, then let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So it starts this little section here by saying, Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him. He knew exactly what was going to happen to him, and he steps forward and is like, all right, it's time. He says, who do you seek? He's ready to move on with it, to get this thing on the road. And they say, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. And then he says these powerful words. He says, I am he. And what happens at this powerful declaration, I am Jesus? Notice what happens is at their realization of he is Jesus. They, they get it. They get who he is. It says they draw back and they fall to the ground. And, and this is very common in scripture. Whenever God divinely reveals himself to someone, they fall to the ground. In Revelation chapter 1, maybe you know the story where God is revealing himself uh, to, to John. And in Revelation chapter 1, he sees Jesus in all his splendor, in all his majesty. And he says, when I saw him, I fell to the ground as though dead. And, and Jesus, though he's humble, though he's, he's incarnate, he says, I am he, and they get it. It's been revealed to them, and they fall down. They fall down, and then they kind of dust themselves back up, uh, off again, I imagine. They stand up, and again, he says to them, all right, now, who are you looking for? And they say, or he says to them, I am, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, who you are looking for. And, and, and John points out here, this is, this is really interesting, that John points out here that, that he goes on and he says, if it's me you want, then let my guys go. See what he's doing? It's, it's kind of neat. He's protecting his disciples. He's saying, These guys have some other work to do, so you guys go on. You guys take me because I'm doing what I'm, I'm here for, but my disciples have some other work to, to accomplish, so let them go, but you take me. And, and John says that this is a direct fulfillment of John 17, one chapter prior, verse 12, where Jesus is praying what's known as his high priestly prayer, and he prays, God, I'm here to guard my disciples. So I want, you to, I want you to see that. And I want you to see that Jesus is ready. He is ready. He says, now is the time. I'm ready to fulfill 
the mission. And he has been focused on the cross. He's been marching towards the cross his entire life on earth. He has executed humanity perfectly. And now it's, it's time. And, and who can stop him, right? Who can stop him? No one can stop him. But if anybody's going to try to stop Jesus, who's it going to be? It's going to be Peter, who is the impulsive one. And he's always so impulsive, right? Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. Here it's bad. It was good when Jesus says, I'm going to jump out on the water and start walking on the water. That was good. But here his impulsiveness is bad. What does he do? Look at verses 10 and 11. Look at what Peter does. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup Father has given me? So what does Peter do? He tries to save Jesus. He's trying to save Jesus. And he pulls out this little sword that he had. And and what these guys would have is these little swords that they would hide in their garments to protect themselves from robbers. And and Peter pulls out this little sword that he has. And by impulse, sing, he he slices off the ear of this guy named Malchus, who's the servant of of the high priest. And, and, And Jesus says, what? He says, Peter, put your sword away. Put your sword away. And then Luke, in, in one of the other Gospels, Luke adds that Jesus then heals Malchus's ear, which is, is kind of crazy, right? You're healing the ear of somebody who's here to kill you, who is, who is your enemy. And it's just another sign that, that Jesus is in control. It's, it's, just, it's clear that Jesus is like, Malchus, I want your ear back. Here's your ear. Let me just put that back on because you're only doing what you need to do. Arrest me because I need to go to the cross. Just, just go ahead and arrest me. And, and then Jesus says to Peter something really, really profound that I want us to focus on for a little while here. He says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? He's referring to the cup of, of God's wrath over the sin of, of mankind. Kind that, that, that Jesus on the cross would not only endure the agony of the crucifixion, which is the most brutal execution model you could possibly imagine. I mean, the Romans perfected this thing so that it would be terrible and awful and, and agonizing and brutal. Jesus not only had to endure that, but he also had to endure the agony of God's wrath against the sin of mankind being poured on him and he would die as the substitution and the sacrifice and payment for our sins. So that was the mission of, of Christ. And in just a minute here, as I said, we're going to have our communion time. And I want you as, you, as you take of, of the juice that represents the blood of Christ, as you take of the cup, I want you just to be thinking about the wrath of God that was poured out on Jesus and, and not on you, that he fulfilled his mission so that you didn't have to endure the wrath of God eternally and so i want you to be prepared for that as we go into this time of of communion and 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 please understand that jesus endured the wrath of god so that we don't have to he endured the wrath of god so that we don't have to and if we would just place faith in his payment we would be saved from enduring the wrath of god eternally and so here peter says or jesus says to peter says peter should i not do this should, should I not do this, Peter? 
I mean, I know you have good intentions. You're trying to help me out here, Peter. But Peter, trust me. You want me to be arrested. Peter, trust me. You want me to go to the cross and die. You need me to go to the cross and, and, and die. And Jesus is just so focused. I have to go do this. But also know that just a few moments prior to Jesus being so poised and so focused and so clearly in control, the Synoptic Gospels record that just a, a few moments prior, he's praying to God and he's saying, God, if there is, if there is any other way, could you, would you remove this, this cup? I mean, he is just, it's agonizing because he understands, he understands he's human. He understands and mortified at, at what is to come, but now he's focused and he's moving forward, and he's saying, I will do this. I will do whatever is necessary. I will endure the cross. So, Peter, you need me to do this. I've got to do this. And so, here's your ear back, Malchus. I'm going. Arrest me. And I just want you to hear the tone in, in this statement. I think this, the, the tone, we could, we could receive it in so many different ways, several connotations here. Just hear it again. Should I not drink the cup? The cup that God the Father has given me to bear. As in, listen, God has given me a mission. I, I must fulfill it. I, I have to fulfill it. And I just love the tone because it sounds like Jesus is telling Peter, he's saying, look, it would be ludicrous for me not to do what God has me here for. It would be ludicrous for me to come and get on this mission, but then not fulfill the mission. I, I have to do it. And if we want to be a people who follow the example of Christ, then we too have to follow this example of mission that say God has given me a mission, and so I must engage in the mission. And it would be ludicrous for me, it would be ludicrous for you not to do what God has sent you to do and, and, and know that Jesus wasn't caught by surprise. He knew everything that was going down. See that he was a man on a mission, purpose, per- perfectly in control. And the, the last thing that he tells Peter before going to the cross, the last thing that he's telling us before going to the cross is he's saying, I must do what God has sent me to do. And you must do what God has sent you to do. And God has sent you. He has sent you. Look at Luke chapter 17, verse 18. As Jesus is praying just before what happens here in John chapter 18. What does he say? Jesus is praying. He says, God, as you sent me in the world, so I have sent them in the world. He sent us on a mission. Just like Jesus was a man on a mission, we are to be a people on on a mission. And all throughout the, the Gospels, we hear Jesus saying things like, the Father has sent me. I have been sent. I have come for this reason. Father has sent me. The Father has sent me. We see it over and over and over again. In fact, on the, on the other side of this story, in John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus has endured the cross. He has resurrected back to life. The first time he sees his disciples all together again, what he says to them is, is incredible. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. I've got it done. I've accomplished it, but now you have some work to do. He was God, man, on a mission. Likewise, we're to be a people on mission. And I just want that to empower you. I, I want you to hear that and just say, wow, he's called me to a mission. He's given me a purpose. There's more to life. He has a plan for my life. This is an incredible that Jesus was perfectly obedient. And so the question to us is, will we be obedient? Will we take this mission? And would we be sent by Christ and, and go and to fulfill the mission that he's given us? Now, he could have fulfilled his mission and created some other kind of way to constantly bring his people to restoration. But he says, no, I want to give these guys that I love the privilege 
the privilege, not the duty, the privilege to be on mission with me. But he will do it with or without you. He's going to get it done. It's already been laid out in Scripture. He's going to get it done. But we can have the privilege to be on mission with God. Now that we've kind of heard this, this stirring narrative of Jesus just so focused, saying, nope, arrest me. I'm going to the cross. Now that we've heard that, that stirring narrative, here's what I want to do. I want, us to, I want us to get just some practical biblical principles for living missionally from this text, if we can. So let's just kind of go through some of these. And, and you may want to write these down. Principles for, for living missionally. First one is this. Know the mission. Know the mission. Seems so obvious, but you need to know the mission. Over and over and over again, we hear Jesus saying things like, I came so that they may have life and have it abundantly. Or, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Or, God sent his Son into the world so that, in order that, the world might be saved through him. And he knows why he came. Do you know why you're here? Do you really know why you're here? Not just do you acknowledge why you're here. Do you know it in the core of your being? You know why you're here. You focused on that mission. And I want you to know this too. He, he knew why he was here while he was here. It's really important because I think a lot of us are like, you know what, I'm just going to kind of take life as it comes. And, and at the end of my life, I'll kind of, I'll get it. I'll understand where I fit into the big scheme of things. And it sounds cute. It sounds nice. But it's stupid if we know why we're here. And he says, I, I, I've given you the, the, the recognition, I, I've given you the reason, the plan. Here's why you're here while you're here. You can know it. And so we need to know the, the mission. And we're, our mission on this earth is to, to live lives that glorify God. And we were designed that way, by the way, before the fall of man. We were designed that way before we broke this thing with our, our sin. We were designed to glorify God. And so we continue to glorify God as a people now who have been restored by God, and then the scriptures say that we are to let our lights so shine, that we are to glorify God before men, that they see that, and they want to join us in glorifying God. And so we've got to know our mission, that we are here to live lives that worship and glorify God, and, and as a result, we will then be people who are on mission, making disciples of all nations. And, and in any other area of life, we get this. In any other area of life, we get the fact that if you don't know your objective, you're going to get nothing accomplished. But I think many of us just need this reminder this morning. Why are you here? Why are you here? What is, is your mission? We need to know this truth. I think we know it, but we re- need to really know it and internalize it. So God is reminding you, I have a mission for you. I have a mission for you. So first is, is know your mission. Here's the next principle. Know your field. Know your, your field, your mission field. Where has God strategically placed you at this point in your life as a mission airy. He's put you where you're at on purpose. And hopefully I, I've beat this in your heads enough, but I, I'll tell you again that in God's economy, there is no such thing as coincidence. There is no such thing as coincidence. And so the people that are around you right now, where you're at right now in life, you are there for a reason and, and it seems like so many people just kind of constantly just focus and think about the future when I get that job when I get that house when I can live in that neighborhood when I can go to that school or when I can graduate from that school it's always the next step when I can get there when I can get out of this situation then and God says no you are here right now for a reason on purpose let me give you John seventeen eighteen again Jesus says as a father has sent me into the world I have sent 
them into the world. And so Jesus was sent as a missionary to humanity, and you're sent wherever you're at. No matter how miserable you are there right now, you are wherever you're at for a reason, on purpose. And so start looking at where you're at and start living as a missionary there, as a missional Christian. And a missional Christian realizes God has me here right now on purpose. And a missional Christian not only identifies the field, but exegetes the field. Let me help you get that. It's easy to identify the field and say, okay, that's my neighbor. I should probably be a missionary to them. Those are my extended family. I should probably be a missionary to them. Those are my coworkers. I should probably be a missionary to them. That's one thing to identify the field, but we also need to, to exegete the field. We need to understand the field. We need to understand why people are the way they are. And so for their neighbor, you need to start to understand your neighbor's pains and what they're struggling with and understand that and, and pray for them. For your, your family, you need to understand why are they such jerks to me? Why are they the way they are, right? You need to understand that. Maybe it's your, it's your coworkers. Why are they hung up on this one issue? And start to understand that exegete that get that don't just identify but understand and and exegete so that we can know why people are the way they are and then you can speak truth into it so you understand why people are the way they are and then you can speak truth into it there's so many examples in scripture let me just give you a couple how about jesus with the woman at the well the samaritan woman he sits down beside her and and he knows exactly what's going on he understands her he understands that that she's been with with all these different men and she's just sleeping with all these different men. And, and she's trying to get her, her emotional thirst just quenched by all these guys. And Jesus says, uh-uh. He says, I will quench your thirst. Let me, let me show you the well that does not run dry. How about, how about Lazarus? Right? Everybody's around Lazarus. Uh, his, his sisters are crying. Family's upset. And Jesus comes in. What does he do? He says, wow, that's, that's too bad. You watch what I'm going to do in a second. No, he, he comes in. He cries with them. Right? He, he cries with them. He gets with them. And then he speaks into it and he says, I want to show you something. I have power over death. And I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection. So he speaks truth into the, the life of people. He speaks truth into their situation. So he doesn't just identify them, but he understands them. And then he speaks his truth into them. And so know, know your field we're, we're still seeking to understand this field right west roxbury rosendale dedham newton jamaica plain brooklyn we're, we're trying to understand it we're trying to understand what's going on why people are the way they are we know that in rosendale there's there's a lot of financial issues and we're going to speak into that we're going to say your hope is not in this life there's there's in, in rosendale there's a, there's a lot of ethnic diversity and we're going to say listen that's a good thing Right? We can be unified, though we're diverse. We can be unified in mission. We can be unified in spirit, unified in Christ, and we can speak into that. Here in, in West Roxbury, there's been a lot of pain by some of the history of what has happened as, as over the past couple decades with the Catholic Church. And so we speak into that, and we say, you don't put your faith in a church. You don't put your faith in an institution. You put your faith in Christ, right? You don't put your faith in a leader who will let you down. You put your faith in Christ. And so we see it. We understand it. We speak truth into it. Very, very, very important that we get this. And, and, and maybe some of us in here, you, you've, at one point in life, you were on the field. You were serving accordingly. You knew your field. You knew who you were to be a missionary to. But now you look at where you're at right now, and, and, and today you find yourself maybe being overtaken by the field that you're in. It's like you're lost in the field and the elements of the field and you've maybe lost sight of, of the mission that God has you on. We start to wander. We start to become kind of aimless. And, and, and before we know, 
the, the field that we sought to impact has now become the field that is mastering us. I mean, this, this is seen in so many just practical examples in life. Like for me, this is, this is kind of stupid, but for me, uh, do you ever get distracted? Yeah. <laughs> I get distracted pretty stinking easily. And like, I'll, I'll give you an example. Like, I'm pretty young, but I'm already starting to act like I'm 80 years old. And I'll, I'll be at my desk, I'll be doing some work, and I'm like, you know, I need some coffee. And I'll get up to go get some coffee, and on my way to the coffee maker, somebody will talk to me, and I get sidetracked, and that's not a bad thing, talking to people, but sometimes I'll be like, let me go check the mail, and really what I'm doing is I'm stalling, stalling, because I know the mail's not going to be here till 2, but it's, you know, 10, and I'm still going to go check the mail, and then it's like, oh, let me go get some some fresh air, and go stand outside for a little bit, and watch the birds, or whatever, and then I come, and next thing I know, I'm at my desk again, thinking, man, I could really use some coffee. I'm like, wait, didn't I already get up to get some coffee? I mean, now, now that's crazy, but let me just show you how crazy I actually am now. So now knowing that, that I, I want to be productive, but I have trouble and that I'm easily distracted, knowing that I'll be sitting at my desk and, and I'll want to get some coffee and I'll get up to go to the coffee maker, but what I'll do is I'll just beeline it and go coffee, coffee, coffee. I'll literally say that in my head, coffee, coffee, going to get coffee, coffee, because otherwise I'll just, I'll forget and I'll get distracted. I don't want to break the groove that I'm in, maybe writing a message or writing a devotional or studying or something. And so I'm just, it's, it's silly, it's stupid, I'm crazy, I know, but coffee, coffee, because I just get distracted. And maybe that's where you're at right now is you are just, you're, you're distracted, you're sidetracked. Some of us, myself included, can be like dumb fish at times. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a little you know, like sparkle in our side and we're like, ah, we jump on it and next thing you know, we're hooked, right? Some of us get easily distracted and maybe that's where you are right now. You're just distracted. Like you know, you know what the mission is that God has put before you, but you're, you're in the middle of being sidetracked. You're, you're distracted from what God has for you and, and you know the mission, you know the mission, but you're distracted from the mission. And since that's true, since we're so easily distracted, we have to put some things in place to keep us from being distracted. And God has put some things in place to regain our attention. And so these next last two points here I want you to see. God has given us a helper. God has given us help. Know your help. Know your help. Jesus has given us his, his Holy Spirit. He refers to him in John chapter 16 as, as the helper. And we're out of time here, so let me just kind of encourage you. Read through John 16. His spirit empowers you. It helps you to remember. It brings things to your remembrance, reminds you of truth. And so he, he refocuses you if he's really living inside of you. That's why if people say, I, I, yeah, I, was, I, I gave my life to Jesus at eight years old, but they never returned to Jesus after going astray their teenage years, I don't think they ever gave their life to Christ because a true person will have the Spirit saying, you're, you're sidetracked, but bam, let me bring you back on the path. And so we have, have the Spirit as your helper. And then another, another piece of help, but I want you to get this as a separate point too, is know your team. Know your, know your team. Because we get, we get sidetracked, but if you know who your team is and you surround yourself with the right people, though you're sidetracked, they're going to say, hey, get back over here. Let me, let me lovingly pull you back. Again, Galatians 6. Read Galatians chapter 6. It says, though we're, we're caught, we are to, to bring those people who are caught back in a spirit of gentleness, in a spirit of, of gentleness. And so we have these co-laborers on the mission with us. We have these people on the mission with us. And we have this support team. And, and, and this support team is the church. It's the church. It's kind of like if, if, if we're going to use this 007 or, I don't know, Mission Impossible kind of concept. It's like the, the field hospital, right? That you're in battle, you're in the middle of battle, but then you bring them back to, to the field hospital so that they can be 
restored. They can be helped. They can be refocused. They can be bandaged up. And that's a lot of times what the, the church is. Hebrews chapter 10, 24 and 25, this is a passage that pastors use all the time to make you feel guilty for not going to church, right? But Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let me just give you 25 first. 25 says, we cannot neglect to meet together, that would be church, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So they say, hear that? You've got to go to church, which is absolutely true. Commit yourself to church. Commit yourself to being a part of, of this community of Christians who are committed to the glory of God, who are committed to shepherding and bringing people back, who are committed to the, the, the biblical sacraments, who are committed to biblical leadership, who are committed to just living lives on mission with God. Commit yourself to a group of people like that if you want to survive, because if, if, if you want to survive, when you go astray, they're going to say, uh-uh, you're going to get killed over there. Come back. And they bring you back. And, and why do we do this? Go to the verse prior to that, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. We just read 25, 24 says, so that we can stir one another up towards love and good deeds. And so we're out in the world. We're, we're supposedly supposed to be living on mission, but then we gather together to stir one another or spur one another on. Other translations say to provoke one another towards love and good deeds. So we scatter, but then we gather regularly. And then we scatter and we gather, and we go out on the field, and, and we get beat up, right? Sometimes we feel like we're getting beat up, but we come back here to the field hospital, and we get taken care of. We get bandaged up, and we get refreshed and, 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 and spurred on to go and to do what God has called us to do. And maybe some of you, that's just, you just need to hear that. You need to hear that, one, that you're not alone in this, and you need to be reminded, because maybe you are distracted right now. And, and this is a team effort even jesus himself enlisted a team these guys that he's he's in this this moment in john chapter 18 and he says you take me you're here for me you arrest me these guys they have something they need to go do and he sends them away right it's incredible what he does and and maybe today somebody in here has never given their life to christ they've never placed faith in christ and maybe what what some people need to hear which was really powerful in the early days of the disciples being called by christ is that jesus looks into your life he says, I have a plan for you. I've got something great for you. I want you to follow me. I want you to live a life that is radical, full of faith in me. And, and now you, you see it. Wow, he's got something big for my life. He has a, a mission for my life. And that's what some of you need. Ultimately, you need Jesus and, and you need a calling for your life. And he gives it to you very clearly that I have a mission. So know your mission, know your field, know your help, and know, know your team. Well, let me close with this. I want to close with just maybe just a handful real quickly, a few points that will just be really super, super practical for you that I would ask you guys, us together as a church to commit to. These are just just handful of, of missional practices. And you may definitely want to write these down, missional practices. And, and, and I want you to go and I want you to start practicing these today. Because if Christians are to live lives that are on mission, we have to live lives on purpose. And so... So you need to hear these. Write, write these down. Number one, real practical, eat with non-Christians. You hear that? Eat with non-Christians. I mean, how many times in Scripture do we see Jesus doing that? Can you imagine if we committed to, to two times a month having a meal with a non-Christian? 
Can you imagine? It's 24 times a year among each of us. Think about all the people that we could touch. Let's just do one time a month. I, I want to ask you to commit to two. But what about what, 12 times a year if we had a meal with, with non-Christians? And I know for some of you guys, eating is your spiritual gift. So lucky for you, right? But eat with non-Christians. Some of you guys have crazy schedules, so work it out differently. Maybe, maybe you just need to order pizza. Maybe, maybe you just need to, on your lunch break, take a coworker out and go, th- go that way because you don't have time in the evening or they live on the other part of town. They wouldn't be able to make it over there. But eat with non-Christians. Take coffee breaks with non-Christians. But you, you've got to do this. Eat with non-Christians. Here's the next one. Become a walker. Because we're eating so many meals, right? We need to become walkers and, and work it all off. But be- become a walker. And here's, here's what I mean. If you live in a walkable area, you should start walking. Get out of the car and start walking places. This is very important, right? Go green. It's hip right now, right? Maybe, maybe for you, it's, it's walk to the pharmacy. Walk to the post office. Walk to get your, your coffee to coffee shops. Walk to the convenience store. Walk to the bank. My family, we like to take regular walks so that we can see people and we can meet people. We can kind of be out in the community and striking up conversations. And, and if you have kids, or pets, same thing, right? If you have kids or pets, they're really, really helpful in, in meeting people. I mean, I mean, it, it's really helpful. Like, my boys love to say hi to everyone. So we'll be walking down the road, down the sidewalk, and they'll just be like, hi, hi. <laughs> and they're just they're like broken records. And then if somebody doesn't acknowledge them, they'll just keep saying hi until they acknowledge them. So you should hear, like, Isaiah the Porter is like, hi. And they, maybe the person walking is, is, you know, got their eye pot in or they're they're thinking he's talking to somebody else or they just don't hear him he's like hi 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 and he just keeps going until they acknowledge him it's a wonderful thing and and we're on these community family walks so that we're meeting people and getting in conversations and we're passing in the morning when i go out with the boys in the morning sometimes we pass the same crossing guards we strike up conversations it's it's a great thing become a walker here's another one become a regular so if if you get a coffee daily Go to the same place every day so that you can meet the baristas and you can get to know the barista's name and you can start to know where they're at and talk to them, strike up conversation. Maybe it's, it's a newspaper. First, if you're a newspaper reader, let me just tell you, it's the year 2010. Get on the internet, save yourself some money. But if you are a newspaper person, go to the same place and get the newspaper at the same place every day so that you can know the, the clerk. Or if you go to the gym, try to go to the, the gym the same time every day so you're working out with the same people every day take the ipods out of the out of the ear out of your ears at at the gym and and start to be with people if you go to the park go to the same park with your kids over and over and over again take family walks as i said before every single day and and make that a part of of your habit and get to know the names of people and be very intentional so be a regular here's the next one hobby with non-christians seems so obvious right but you have a hobby do it with non-Christians. I, it drives me nuts when I see like Christian knitting clubs. I feel, like, I feel like every church has one Christian knitting club, right? Christian knitting clubs. Like, let's get some non-Christians to come and, and to knit with us, right, Paul? I mean, let's get, some, Christian, let's get some, some, some non-Christian knitting clubs. So whatever it is that you enjoy, do it with, with non-Christians too. I mean, we need to kind of try to pull ourselves away from the Christian subculture a bit if we can and, and be out and about and around non-believers and and maybe it's a sport you, you could do that maybe it's music i mean let's start a jam session i don't know but become really intentional you have to be the initiator i think we're often waiting on the church to 
publish something in the bulletin or something or so that oh that's something i can do no be the initiator do something do something yourself it's a mom's group that's it's a great thing mom's groups are always at libraries and local parks go there go there it's just a, a really good practice for us i had this friend named vivek and he's uh, an indian guy and uh the other day he asked me to pray for him he says josh would you pray for my buddy i'm like okay what's going on he goes well He's planting a church in, in the MIT, Harvard, like right around there. He's a very intellectual guy. He's trying to minister to intellectual people. He says, pray for my body. He says, um, I, I play tennis uh, three times a day. I said, what? Three times a day. He's like in his 50s. He says, pray for my body. I said, what are you doing playing tennis three times a day? He says, well, I got to meet people, right? And so he goes on Craigslist, puts his name out as a tennis partner. He says, I only have, I only have, one tennis game in me a day, but he said, pray for me for three tennis games. I mean, I'm talking about like Paul says in scripture, I, I beat my body. I make it my slave, right? I mean, the Vec is making it his slave. I mean, he's legit. The other funny thing that the Vec is doing so that he can uh, hobby, you know, hobby with non-Christians is him playing tennis uh, ridiculous amounts of times a day. But the other thing he does, this guy's brilliant. I mean, he's got an accent, of course, but he's brilliant. He's ministering to MIT, and he's, like, so intellectual. So he started taking English classes to get help with his English, though he's brilliant. He says, it's great, Josh, because what I do is at the beginning of the class, you have to give them a paper for them to read over and over and over again. So I just give them my testimony, and they just read it and critique it. <laughs> I love this guy, Vivek. He's awesome. He's incredible. But listen, hobby with, and I'm like, Vivek, you speak better English than me, by the way. I mean, like, and you're going to English class. I mean, he's so he's so strategic love the guy hobby with non-christians and then the last one participate in community life participate in community life churches like to put on their own events and their own separate outside things but let's participate in the things that the community is already doing so that we can add value to the things that the community is 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 a part of my wife and i like to go on thursday nights to the roslindale um, summer concert series and it's fun and, and we get to meet a lot of people, and we hope that we add a little bit of value and a little bit of, of excitement while we're there. We, we try as often as we can to go to the Rosendale Farmer's Market every Saturday morning, right? We want to go and we want to add value to the community and not be separatists, but get in the community and serve the community. And, and we have to really train our eyes to look for these opportunities because we're so easy. It's just so easy and natural for those of us who have grown around churches to just look here, okay, what's the church got next for me? What, what, what can we do next with the church to go reach out? We need to do this individually and collectively. And so I just want you to have these things. Eat with non-Christians. Become a walker. Be a regular. Hobby with non-Christians. Tennis for six hours a day. And participate in, in community life. All right? Hope, hopefully those will help you. But, man, we love you guys. We're glad you're here. And I just pray that no matter where you're at, you, you hear a vision for your life spoken from Christ that he's got a vision for your life, that he says, listen, I have a mission for you, and you need me, and some of you need to place faith in Jesus, and you just, in the best way you know how, need to say, Jesus, I'm yours. I, I trust in your substitutionary death for me, and the life that you give me, I'm, I'm yours, and I want to be on mission with you. And some of us Christians in here need to say, I need to be refocused and get on mission with God. And so let me pray for us, if we can. God, we just, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the, the, the challenge from Scripture. Lord, I pray that we would be Christ-like, that we would be people who, who, who know the mission, who know the field, and who are living the mission with the support that you have, have given us and with the stamina that you have, or that we would do it, that we'd be on mission with you.
God, we thank you so much as we enter into this time of communion. We thank you so much for your body that was broken on the cross as our substitution. That our righteousness is not what we do. Our righteousness is what you did. And we trust in that. Lord, we thank you that you died on our behalf. So though we die, we don't die eternally. We die and we live forever with you. We thank you for that, God. And God, we just, as we enter into communion, we thank you for your body. We thank you for your blood that was shed, that you willingly took the cup of God's wrath. Thank you. Stir us up. Use us to impact West Boston for Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.